The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. Harry just said we should have sang happy birthday. Maybe a surprise later in the service. I said on Facebook, uh, if we're 13 now, who do we start begging for a cell phone? (laughs) Right? That's the stage of life we're in. So speaking of birthdays and youth, how many of you, show of hands, have ever read a book to a baby? Not a kid, not a toddler, like a pre-verbal, honest-to-God baby, right? Yeah, me too. Before they were born even. Wow, that's a whole other level. And illustrating, right, that it's funny a little bit that we do this because from an adult's perspective on the purpose of reading a book, it's going to go completely over the baby's head, right? If we're thinking about the purpose of reading a book as absorbing a story or learning something or comprehending an idea or following a plot, reading a book to a baby is doomed to fail. About four years ago, one of my very best friends in the world, my friend Jen, she lives in D.C., and she and I are like sisters. Neither of us has a sister in our family. So we are super tight. She moved away just before she got pregnant with her first child. And so when he was born, her little baby, Simon, I made a beeline down to D.C. to go visit them. This is Simon four years ago. I know. It's the cutest little fat nugget, right? (laughs) And we spent the day together. And as the sun started to set, it became clear to me that she really wanted me to read Simon his bedtime story. She really wanted to see her dear friend read a bedtime story to her first child, to her new baby. And of course, I was caught up in that same beautiful emotional fog, like, of course I want to read a bedtime story to your baby. So we probably spent 15 minutes letting Simon choose a book, which is a true exercise in absurdist physical comedy, right? Does, does two smacks on the cover mean yes or no? Does flinging the book clear across the room mean rejection? Or is that how he's expressing his thrill, right, of anticipation for that story? So eventually Simon chose a book, and we settled in to his nursery. I put him on my lap, and I opened the book. And in my kindest, most loving voice, I started to read. And he squirmed, and he wiggled around, and he kind of slumped over my arm to the side. He turned around and looked at me and tried to grab the glasses off my face. Eventually, he wandered back to the book, but only to push my hand back every time I tried to turn the page, right? Apparently, he wanted to read this book backwards. And I said, jokingly, Simon, you'll never be able to follow the plot if you keep doing this, right? I don't think we ever made it through that book. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wrestled it away and started chewing on it at some point. And Jen and I just gave up. Which, of course, was fine with us. Because we both knew that reading Simon the book was never about reading Simon the book. This quote popped up 
on my Facebook feed last week. I'll read it to you. You know, the crazy thing about babies is that some people would think reading a baby a book about farm animals is teaching them about farm animals. But it's really teaching them about the concept of a book and how there's new information on a single page of an object. But really, beyond that, it's teaching them how language works. And really, beyond that, it's actually teaching them about human interaction. And really, really, it's them learning about existing in a three-dimensional space and how they can navigate that space. But actually, really, above all, it is teaching them that mama loves them. So many layers, so many different things, all happening at one time. When we are looking at this world with new eyes, when we are beginners with a fresh view of things, there's so much happening. When we open up to all of those things that are here around us and for us in this world, we can see that. And we might realize, just as the baby might realize, that love is here too. That love is somewhere already waiting for us, already here. In this message series, we are talking a lot this new year, our Daily Bread message series, about what Frank said about the basic foundational experiences of our day-to-day lives, the people and the stories that shape us, our everyday regular minutes and hours. And we are exploring practices that will help us remember that holiness is there, too. That holiness is not only found in certain places or at certain times, not just long ago and far away, but right now portioned out to us almost daily, like sustenance. It's easy when we are young to be sponges. We are still just taking it all in at that age as tiny little children, right? We have so little of that dogma to carry, like Reverend Ken talked about two weeks ago. We are good at being beginners, But the things that we learn can settle into us pretty quickly. And that little quote about reading a baby, a book, that is why, right? Because there is so much happening as we learn things, as we experience this world. No wonder it's so hard to unlearn some of the habits and ideas our families taught us. They are all mixed up with our first experiences of literal sustenance, of being fed and sheltered and loved. The way we are raised, it doesn't just create grooves in our thinking. It weaves into our hearts in patterns of emotion and connection. So becoming a beginner again, opening up to look for new sources of what matters, of meaning in our lives. It's challenging. It's vulnerable. 
You can't be an honest beginner without accepting that that means you don't know something. And you don't know what will happen if you go looking for something new outside of your comfort zone. I've been thinking a lot about this after reading this book, Educated. It's a memoir written by this woman, Tara Westover. How many of you curious have read this? That's more than the first service, actually. It was kind of the book two years ago. New York Times bestseller, Oprah's List. Barack Obama said it was one of his favorite books of the year. It is an enthralling story about Tara's life growing up in a survivalist Mormon family in Idaho. Now, some of you were here last week, and you might have heard Loy Miller, our lay worship leader, our preacher, she shared a story about growing up in a pretty conservative, uh, fundamentalist religious community. If you heard that, take Loy's story and multiply it by about 10,000. That's Tara Westover's experience. Tara's family not only believed the end of the world was coming, they were preparing. They were taking practical steps to stockpile food and gasoline and weapons on their property. Tara's dad was trying to remove their family from the grid in every way possible, only trusting themselves. They kept their children away from any government system, the schools, the medical establishment, Tara and three of her siblings were not issued birth certificates when they were born. Yeah, it's that level. (laughs) And there is a lot going on in this book. If you've read it, you know, trauma, abuse, mental illness, codependency, as there are in many families. But the backdrop of this isolated, extremist world makes it especially fascinating. Particularly when you consider, look at Tara, she's 33 years old. So the stories she tells that sound so archaic and so out of touch, they happened in the 90s and the 2000s. This is going on in our world right now. Now, remarkably, Tara chose to leave home. She chose when she turned about 16 to look for something more than what she'd been given. She decides to get an education. And she's admitted, through a long, winding journey that is very interesting to read about, to BYU, to Brigham Young University, a good Mormon school, thinking that will at least help to ease this transition for her. But the gulf between her and the other students, it is way bigger than she imagined. When Tara first arrives, she has an apartment off campus, and she meets her roommate, Mary. That first day that they meet, Tara is so relieved. She says, Mary dressed like a Mormon. She had a floor-length floral skirt on, and I thought, okay, maybe I'm not so alone here. But then, she said, that evening, Mary stood up from the couch She said, well, classes start tomorrow. It's time to stock up on groceries. And then she left. And she came back an hour later with two paper bags. 
Didn't you know shopping was forbidden on the Sabbath? I'd never so much as purchased a stick of gum on a Sunday, Tara said. But Mary casually unpacked eggs and milk without acknowledging that every item she was placing in our fridge was a violation of the Lord's commandments. Tara has never been around people who don't live like her family. And for a while, it just messes with her head. I mean, she chose this. She wanted to grow. But it was not easy. And she was not happy being a beginner. She was scared and appalled and confused. She doubts herself and her choices thousands of times. But she also starts to realize Once you squeeze the toothpaste out of the tube, it can't go back in. Tara used to have this concrete certainty about the Sabbath and modesty and the end of the world and how it all works. And now that she has encountered something different, whatever she chooses to do with that information, she can't go back to not knowing. She can't go back to not seeing Now, most of us don't have a story like Tara's, but we probably have some experience of finding ourselves encountering new ideas, unfamiliar ways of living life, something that makes us feel like a fish out of water, uncertain and uncomfortable. And I think when we come to places like this in our lives, We really only have a choice between two competing struggles. Do we struggle to hold on? To keep our eyes shut, to fight for what we knew, for the way it had to be, until our voices are hoarse and our knuckles are white? Or do we choose the struggle of growth? The struggle of being tossed around by uncertainty, being scared, being uncomfortable, having to relearn so much about who and how to be. Accepting that some kind of an education is being offered to us. A lot of people choose the first struggle. We're seeing that now in our country, in our world. But here... We believe that truth and holiness is still unfolding all around us. We believe that each person carries a piece of God, of the divine, that each person matters and is worthy and carries a piece of that truth. That the purpose of living is to be fully alive while we're here. And if we want to be faithful to those beliefs, I think we have to choose the struggle of growth. We have to choose the education. And when we go out looking for something deeper, something more meaningful in this life, it will usually rock our world. It usually won't be comfortable all the time. We will get that education. 
I still remember when I first tried to start a daily spiritual practice. I was so bad at it, you guys. I didn't like it. It was awful. I honestly told myself I, I thought it went, went against my nature, right, to sit and meditate for 20 minutes. I'm an extrovert. I like people. I like interacting with people, right? My brain was always going. My habit was to be thinking and working and churning at a mile a minute. A lifetime of habits from my family, my schooling, all, that ha- all of that had brought me to that place. I still remember saying to Reverend Ken, without a hint of irony, I'm interested in other people, Ken, and what's happening with them. I don't want to look at my own thoughts and feelings. I'm not that interesting. Well, we don't have time to cover all the work it took with my therapist to unpack that comment, that I'm not that interesting. But I will tell you what helped me turn a corner in my struggle with spiritual practice. I joined a group. Last thing I wanted to do, right, do this in public. But I joined one of the basic mindfulness small groups that we offer about once a year here at Wellsprings. All of us, maybe 12 of us in that group, we would come over there in Gresh in the library. We would sit and meditate together for 20 minutes in in silence. The exact practice I was trying at home and just loathing. And then we'd spend the rest of the time talking about meditation, talking about what the practice was like. And we were all beginners. I think most of us were pretty uncomfortable Reverend Ken was our group leader that time, and he would pose a question like, what did you notice? Or what feelings came up for you when we sat? And most of us, myself included, would launch into speeches, multi-paragraph answers to those questions. We would share our stream of consciousness instead of our feelings. We would talk about all the ins and outs of the argument we had in our heads with our spouse or our coworker during the quiet time. We'd give these long, uh, you know, declarations of why we were so bad at meditation, which the silence had given us the time to finally figure out. But Deborah was in that group. Some of you remember Deborah. Deborah Bird. She's still alive, don't worry. Deborah. <laughs> Deborah joined Wellsprings about seven years ago and moved back to her home state of Texas, uh, maybe two or three years ago. And Deborah was there, and she would just answer the question. Ken would ask, How did you feel? And she would say, Nervous, or happy, or frustrated, or lonely. Ken would ask, what did you notice in your body? And she would say, a knot in my stomach, tension in my back. And she seemed to be getting something out of this. I was in awe of Deborah. I had no ability to not answer these questions in a multi-page essay format. And watching her, it was like a light bulb went off. Like, I didn't know you could do that. This is what it means to just notice, to strip everything else away and just notice. I didn't even know what that was good for. 
It went against every instinct I had. But it seemed to be what made this meditation thing work for people. It seemed to be what made all those benefits of meditation I kept hearing about real for Deborah. You know, I think about reading that story to Simon and how I could have been that white-knuckled person with the book. No, Simon, we need to turn the pages in order. No, Simon, you need to hear the whole story. We need to get to the end before you go to bed. But somehow I knew that that wasn't the point. I must have learned that somewhere. We all have things to learn. We all can learn. If we will let ourselves let go and be beginners. As time goes on for Tara Westover, she starts to let a little bit go. It's hard for her. But at one point, she writes a journal entry about a painful experience that she had with her brother. And she actually writes two side by side. First, she writes about it from the worldview of her parents and her family, rationalizing what happened and why it was okay. And then on the next page, she writes the same story again in her own voice. She writes what she noticed, what she felt, what actually happened to her. And it was a little confusing. But she said it also amazed her that from somewhere, she said, inside that brittle shell, that girl made vacant by the fictions around her, there was still a spark of myself. Tara's book is a real gift. I definitely recommend reading it. It's an extreme example, but it is surely a story that will inspire anyone who wants to leave their comfort zone, who is seeking more from this life. And Deborah has given us a gift, too. I asked her for her permission to share with you today her blog. She started documenting what it was like for her to sit, for her to build her meditation practice way back in 2016. After every session, she would write about what it was like, about what came up for her. And you can go back and read years' worth of check-ins. There are days when she is cranky and in pain and doesn't want to be doing this. There are days that she's happy. There are days that she's sad. Days that the grief of her divorce takes over. Days that her progress and healing brings tears to her eyes. Tears of joy. Unfortunately, the link to her blog is not easy to remember. It's come walk with me. The journey is long dot blogspot dot com. So I'll post it on Facebook later today and I'll put it on Realm. And if you want it, you can come see me after the service. I'll, I'll get it to you. But if it helps you to have a guide, to have somebody who's been on this path before, as you start to search for more meaning in your daily life, I can personally recommend Deborah 
as an excellent teacher. And I want to leave you with one more offering today. Think of it maybe as a tool for your spiritual toolkit. I know that our spiritual development ministry put together the guide for our message series, and it has a suggested spiritual practice just to get you started for a total beginner. They suggest stopping once a day and taking three deep breaths. It's a great starting practice. So think of this as maybe second grade, if you graduated from that practice. This is an adapted four-step framework from the mindfulness-based stress reduction model. It's a four-step check-in with yourself. You don't need a meditation cushion to do this. You don't need an altar at home. You don't even need 20 minutes of uninterrupted quiet, which I know can be hard to find in some people's lives. You can do it sitting in the car before you leave the parking lot. You can do it in the shower or walking your dog. Maybe you stay in the basement for a minute after you shove in the load of laundry and pretend you're still doing the laundry so your kids leave you alone for a second and you do it there. Just practice checking in with yourself. The first step, my body. How is my body right now? How do I feel physically? And maybe the answer is tired or tight stomach or hungry or restless. The second step, how are my emotions? How do I feel emotionally? Maybe sad, maybe hopeful, resentful, excited. How do I feel emotionally? The third step, now this is the one that can get tricky for me, thoughts. What thoughts do I notice? Be careful to not let your answer veer into paragraph territory. What thoughts do I notice? Maybe I'm thinking about tomorrow. Maybe I'm thinking about the meeting from this morning. I'm thinking about my dad. What thoughts do you notice? And then fourth, what do I notice now? What is most present in this moment? The sound of the washing machine, the smell of my coffee, body, emotions, thoughts, and now. It might seem like you're checking off a list of tasks or accomplishing something orderly and reasoned here. If that is the trick that gets you to actually do this, then go for it, right? To be mindful of your own experience of life for two to three minutes in the day. But the thing is, what you are really doing when you do this, what you're actually really doing in that moment is treating yourself as sacred. You're practicing noticing your own life as if it were the holiest and most precious thing, as if it were worthy of your undivided attention, bringing you, yes, lessons and insights and opportunities to grow, 
but mostly reminding you that this life you live already has meaning and that you are beloved like a doted on newborn baby in this world. No matter how whiny or squirmy or unable to focus, no matter how much you may still have to learn, you are a treasure. And the time that you have here really matters. So may you practice as best you can remembering that. Amen. And may you live in blessing. I invite you to pray with me. God of this time, God of these moments that we are alive, when we read a holy book or a scripture or a poem, we think, wow, they really had it, right? Back in that moment, that's when things were sacred and meaningful. Well, may we find ways to remember that those moments were just like our moments. That those times were no different than the day that we have today. Or the one that we hope to have tomorrow. As much as possible, may we find ways to remember that our lives truly are gifts. And that they matter. For the prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts. We say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.